Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 19, Introduction to Nordic LARP, recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Morningstar. Presented by Jason Morningstar, Emily Kerboss, and Lizzie Stark. Apologies for the poor sound quality of the recording. Should we just get started? I think there may be people who come in late because this is an out-of-the-way location, but yeah. we should respect your time too. So, um, uh, and this is obviously going to be very informal. Uh, I think that there are people in the room who have knowledge to share, and I hope that, uh, <laughs> that they will, uh, because I don't know that any of us are complete experts on the topic. Uh, but we're here to talk about Nordic LARP in general, uh, and we're going to introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Jason Morningstar. I'm the uh, co-founder of Bully Pulpit Games, which is an analog tabletop role-playing game company. Uh, I'm Emily Kerboss. Um, I'm also a game designer, independent publisher, uh, Black and Blue Games, and um, I've gotten to go play games with Europeans, and it's been very fun. Uh, I'm Lizzie Stark. I'm a journalist and author of the book Leaving Mundania, uh, which is a narrative nonfiction exploration of LARP in the U.S. and a little bit in the Nordic countries. Um, it came out in May. Oh, and I have postcards uh, for it. And also, um, uh, I am running a, or I'm helping run a Nordic LARP uh, in Connecticut in October uh, for an all-women cast. Uh, so if you know women who might be interested, or if you are interested yourself, uh, I have flyers. Uh, so we would love new players. That's very exciting because, uh, as far as I know, that's sort of a groundbreaking thing that you're doing. Yeah, uh, I think in it's... In terms of importing that to North America. Yeah, I think it's the first Nordic LARP maybe to be run in, on the side of the pond, and the, um, the original uh, Norwegian organizers will be coming from Norway uh, to run the game. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. So, uh, can we start with some definitions? I mean, I, uh, we, we, we know what LARP is, right? Sort of? Or does anyone not know what LARP is? Everybody Be knows honest. what LARP is. Okay. <laughs> That's a good baseline. Yeah. So, when you say Nordic LARP, how is that different from uh, uh, American LARP, and what is American LARP? I have some ideas about that. Well, thank you, Lizzie, also for writing a book about American LARP. Yeah, right. right. We, if you want to find out what American LARP is, she wrote the book on it. <laughs> um, so I wrote a blog post recently about this, introducing Nordic LARP to um, newbies uh, for Americans. Um, and so, uh, so Nordic LARP, I guess the first thing about Nordic LARP, I think, is that it's not the same as LARP from the Nordic countries. It refers to a specific style of kind of art house LARP. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction. Um, uh, Nordic LARP is uh, only a loose school of design, but I think there are a couple things it has in common. There's immersion. Uh, so there's an emphasis on immersion, um, which kind of means the feeling you get when role play flows naturally and you're part of your character. Uh, there's 360-degree uh, illusion is a, is a design aesthetic, um, which and what that means is that the game scenography strives for realism, so a bouquet of flowers is represented by a bouquet of flowers, not a piece of paper or a symbolic object. Uh, not a lot of mechanics. Um, a long rule set for a Nordic game is like 10 pages or something like this, um, which I think we would all consider pretty cute uh, in America. Extremely long if it's 10 pages. <laughs> Extremely long, right, yeah. Two, three, three. 
And so the rule is like, is common sense rule, like if you can do it in real life, you can do it in game. Um, and so that's also, it reinforces the immersion uh, goal, right? If I have to whip out my character card and check my lockpick skill, that takes you out of the game. And then um, another distinguishing uh, aspect is artistic vision. So a lot of Nordic LARPs have artistic aims, um, whether that means uh, helping players explore like particular emotions or just getting across a political point or experimenting with form for the sake of experiment. I, I have a question. Uh, when you say 10-page uh, rules, that's just the pure mechanics, uh, not counting uh, setting description or character description, that's separate. We have a comment from a... No, no, honestly, the first page might be something like, we are following the local law, and remember these things. Second page could be something about game mechanics, if there are game mechanics at all. Okay. But definitely, world description, character descriptions, etc., are are not considered to be okay. they, they're part of the setting of but it could easily be one page that is anything that's like what we would think of as mechanics. Yeah, yeah I think the best definition is this. Um, you said it uh, quite well that if you can do something, your character that can do the same thing. Yeah. This is basically the rules most, for most of the games. Um, and then the only other thing I have here are just like a couple playstyle differences. So Nordic games seem to emphasize collaboration over competition always. Uh, so as someone said, it's more like singing in a choir than playing a sport. Um, and that includes sometimes playing to lose, or being like a supporting character in someone else's scene and helping push their character conflict. Um, plot is often internal and emphasizes character growth as opposed to being external and solvable. Uh, you know, not um, let's go kill the orcs, but like let's, uh, let's, uh, let's find love or let's work out uh, you know, that unresolved thing we have from the past. Um, secrecy isn't important, or it doesn't seem to be as important as it often is in American games. So, uh, you know, if I... Uh, so there's this, uh, there's this thing where people will release, like, all of the game materials. So for Mad About the Boy, all of the game materials are available on the web, and there's nothing, like, super secret that the organizers are planning or keeping hidden from the players. Um, but it can still be interesting, uh, despite that. Um, and then uh, metagaming is encouraged in certain circumstances. Um, in the U.S., we often consider metagaming a, a bad thing. Uh, you know, if I see where the GM hides the secret power item out of game, in game I have to pretend like I didn't see him, right? Because that wouldn't be fair for the other players. Um, so, so there's a different sort of meta interaction, I think, in the Nordic games where people work out ahead of time. Uh, yeah. A good example of that, um, as a rule, there's uh, this um, rule for greater drama. If it makes sense for the drama, you may um, metagame it through. So you can kind of decide to die from, for, for, from a strike if it makes better drama, or survive if it makes better drama. So it's, it's a weird kind of meta rule that we have in many games. It's a strongly narrativist in GNS theory. Some games are, yeah. Those that have this rule. Uh, they go for emotional intensity, many of the games, uh, and they feature other stuff like safe words and continuous immersion, so you can't pop your fist on your head or do this or put on a white headband or something to just blink out of character. Um, and then finally there's a formal difference. They, have workshop, they often, but not always, have a workshop beforehand and sometimes a debrief afterwards. And workshops are a way to communicate information about the themes of the game and the mechanics of the game. 
Um, and the debrief is a place to talk about emotional stuff that um, could have gone awry or been problematic. So a question, I, I guess I'm taking the role of the questioner here, probably okay. because I, I am the least uh, practically experienced with this. Uh, I've played the least uh, Nordic LARP. Uh, so when I think of uh, LARPs, at least in the American context, I think of parlor LARPs, which might have eight players, and I think of large buffer-type LARPs, uh, which might have 30 or 40 players. What a Is there a typical Nordic LARP, and if so, what size are they usually? When we're talking about LARP, it seems like there's a range, um, and they can. There's another category that's referred to as freeform, and has a, several other uh, names that we'll probably talk about. But just to set it aside, that's smaller. That's more like more like a parlor LARP, where you're you're not having an elaborate set. You're just people in a room, and then you imagine most of what's happening. But when we're looking at the LARP, it seems as though the size is more like starting at 24 and going to. In some countries, you know, getting out of the Nordic countries, but into Russia, there are thousand-person LARPs going on. Three thousand-person yeah, yeah. LARPs. You that's know? a whole different. Thing. Yeah, that's that's another ball of wax. I think we, that needs more study too. Um, <laughs> They're building towns on steps. I mean, exactly, but the 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 scale and the the level of commitment to the event seems really high, um, uh, as far as like building something that's going to be, give you a 360 sense of the actual experience of it. Um, buffer LARPs are probably the closest here in the United States because they're expected to come in character, have weapons of some sort, you're running around in the woods, you're actually doing it. And um, But here, some of the, the um, games are they're more contained, but they're absolutely, uh, the space is crafted. Um, there's one that took place on an actual submarine, not, not in the water. <laughs> but the people were in the space that that and that was uh, taking the place of us um, oh, space station yeah. actually. Um, but talk about immersion! Uh, oh, that's a terrible pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a it's an interesting point that we should also touch on, which is yeah. sort of the cultural support and social support for these in the Nordic countries. Yeah. So, mad about about the boy? How many characters? Uh, there are 28 characters, uh, but I've convinced the. Um, LARP writers that if we get more players, they would write maybe like another ten characters. Okay. There was a game and there was a game at Nordic LARP that took place in a retired nuclear reactor, for example. And just uh, uh, imagine the access to space, you know. The, yeah, the, just the, the trust. Having government support for for those kinds of things just astonishes me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we might mention there are a couple um, uh, structural things that have helped create this LARP scene. Um, one of them uh, that Johanna Kolhonen talks about in her kind of intro to Nordic LARP talk, which is available on the web, is um, that there's this every man's right to roam uh, in many of the Nordic countries, which means that you can uh, be anywhere on public or private land, it sounds like, uh, if you, as long as you stay a respectful distance of like a few hundred meters away from people's dwellings. You can go and camp and picnic and sunbathe and you know gather the fruits of the forest if you do no permanent harm. Uh, and so um, it sound, what it sounds like to me is that it's easier to make uh, like a boffer LARP in the woods uh, because you don't have to pay for space. You can just sort of go in and be there uh, for up to three days or something before you have to make arrangements with people. There's also, um, it varies from country to country, but there's a, a, a strong level of commitment by the government to fund activities that are meaningful, 
um, and there was an article written recently on the, the Gaming as Women blog um, of just lying, outlining how this works in Sweden. And um, so people can put in uh, a grant for funds to have um, a, a social club for younger kids or a study group for older people over 26. And um, basically you, just, you can just write a grant for it. And people might do it for sports or film or some other hobby, but people do it for gaming and it's ex widely accepted. Um, and so it means that there's sort of an institutional foundation for what people do and you, your uh, aspirations can get high and you can work with other groups so that you can actually have a lot of funds for doing something like renting a submarine or a getting access to a, um, a nuclear a nuclear plant. So um, that, um, and the whole foundation of that is that the, the government values this activity and maybe they didn't start out by saying, oh, we want people to role play, that's great. But since the, the door is open there, people can cre create something that they can share with others and it can build over time. So, where should we go next? What, do we have other questions? Well, let's, why don't we ask if you have questions and then we'll... I, I I'm, I'm not sure if this is... But I'm curious about the situation with in, in Nordic countries when it comes to uh, uh, all right, so in America, if we were to hold a, uh, a LARP with a certain number of people, we'd also have to worry about the litigious side of society. We'd, we'd have to get event insurance and stuff like that. Is there, uh, I, I recently went with Emily to a few conventions in uh, Denmark and Finland, and the way things were done there that I saw that was visible to me, so I didn't, I didn't know the background of everything. I was like, America wouldn't go for this. Like, it would cost so much money just to cover the insurance on this. And I'm, I don't know if anybody can comment on. Can you guys? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I'm not fully sure about how many LARPs we really have in France. It says a lot right there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it says probably quite much. Uh, we have a, for uh, running conventions in Finland, uh, or in the Zoom we have a, some kind of uh, liability insurance, but I, I'm quite sure it's, uh, it's not going to cover that much of what would be in a similar event in the US. Yeah, we don't really have to cover the same sort of. Right. That's the reason I suppose why LARPs won't have it. I mean, if it if it's if, if it's say three dozen people, which would be a sort of a medium-sized game by normal standards, um, you wouldn't need to have an insurance because most people have well everything that would be covered there. It would be covered by people's personal insurance mm -hmm. already. You, do, you don't, there is no need to have an event insurance for that. I, I suppose the closest, obviously I haven't been, Luya Sata would probably be something, whoever organizes that, which would be, it's a major SCA event. Oh, right. right. Uh, which gathers people all around the world, uh, lasts for a week, and I'm pretty sure they have some sort of insurance comparable to Ropacon. So if you have a big event like that, you would be expected to have an insurance, but it's nothing like you need here. 
uh, and it doesn't cover the people at all. Yeah. So everybody is responsible for themselves yeah. at, at, in every situation. Yeah. And even if something happens in the game or in the convention, most probably the one person who will be responsible is the person who caused it and not the organizers. If the organizers didn't kind of force the person to do it. That sounds dreamy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it's it's really. I mean, uh, it's really hard for us to figure out the U.S. system because we, our culture is so that you know, you you were the one doing this. We didn't force it upon you. So, how can we be held responsible for you being an idiot falling down the stairs <laughs> and breaking an arm or leg? I mean. You were the one that fell down. Doesn't well, make sense to us either. So no, it, it makes another kind of a problem with the SCA event and some of the bigger buffer events because people need to have their own insurance that's for buffer fighting, yeah. and that can be expensive. Yes, it's, but, it's, but uh, then that's personal insurance for like any dangerous sport. Really. It's so going to be more expensive to have a or coverage for that. And that's but a commitment they need to make. Yeah, but exactly, exactly. It's their personal problem, not the event organizer. So the original question, what kind of insurance do we need? We don't really need it. It's the perk. Um, participants' responsibility. They know where they're coming into. Event, event organizers aren't held responsible, really. But we do have a problem with um, underage people. Because on this if there are any people, um, depending on country, but basically under 18 years, years old, the organizers are responsible every single day. And that's a bit like uh. states. So we kind of try to get some liability waivers from the parents and stuff, but it's a shady area. It's difficult. And that's actually quite a bigger issue in, uh, in the Nordic countries than in the United States, because there actually are a lot of younger kids who do yes. take part in LARP. And, and even people have businesses where they'll run LARPs or they'll run camps where people go out. And I think the age span in the United States would be a little higher, starting maybe at teen years or college. Also, LARP seems uh, way more visible in the Nordic countries, or in many of them, in Denmark especially. Um, there was a Gallup poll done of uh, uh, kids, uh, you know, what did you, what have you done in the last six months? And it, they got some something like 100,000 uh, teenagers uh, said that they had LARPed in the last six months. <laughs> wow. uh, awesome. And Denmark has a population that's like maybe three million people for the whole country, four. and it's four four million <laughs> people. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, like that's a significant portion of children who have LARPed. Um, so I was just impressed. You know, you go anywhere and uh, you know you talk to people about LARP, and they're like, oh, you know, that thing that kids do. It's <laughs> good news. So I, I have a, I'm, I'm interested in, in theme. Uh, it, it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this, this art LARP stuff we're talking about uh, often uh, addresses uh, themes like uh, immigration or uh, brutality in some way or uh, uh, epidemics or tragedy uh, that, that are, are very sort of serious, mature, intense topics that we don't necessarily see in, this, in the same way on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Is that true? Do you think that's a fair assessment? And why is that? I would absolutely agree, yeah. It's definitely a fair assessment. Um, I think, uh, um, 
Uh, I think part of it is that they've got this arty academy uh, sort of around the nudipunct conventions that creates theory. Uh, and I think that once you have aesthetic theory, that gives designers um, concepts to play with. And so I would say that uh, I would link the growth of this arty scene also to the academic writing that's been done around LARP in those countries. And then uh, secondly, um, uh, so the, the, the tough real themes of Nordic LARP, you know, uh, immigration, homelessness, uh, disease and so on um, uh, because mostly in the US it seems to me that we do escapist LARP um, and one of the things about escapist LARP is that it's psychologically safe um, it's not messy uh, so um, we seem more comfortable with uh, clear boundaries maybe uh, than the Nordicans do. Uh, and so I think that it's also a con consequence of our litigious culture. Um, bleed, which is a, a term um, from the Nordic scene, uh, uh, which is about what happens when you're, bleh. bleed is what happens when your character emotions and your real person emotions get mixed up. Uh, and in the Nordic countries, many games will design toward that, or it's re regarded as an accepted uh, it's regarded as something that might happen to you during a game. Um, and bleed can be uh, messy, it can have out-of-game repercussions when you take what happens to you in-game and you leave with it. And, that, and it can be very positive. Um, but I think that we're just a little more cagey about that in the States. Uh, we all have heard tale told of the Stanford prison experiment, right? Which is like a Nordic LARP gone horribly, horribly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when I describe games that I've participated in or heard about, so that's the first thing that people in the United States might think about. They think, oh, so you're just tortured for 36 hours? <laughs> so, well, in some of the LARPs, yes. yes. <laughs> um, but it was interesting um, getting to run and play some games with Europeans uh, this spring to sort of get an insight from the other side. I was running a game that had written by, been written by a friend of mine who, that was based on the, the, the movie Metropolis, which is an early German uh, expressionist film that would, deals with very serious issues. It's industrialization, alienation from labor, socialism, class warfare. And this game uses techniques, and it's, it's a little bit more in that freeform camp. It's a little more loose rather than the LARP side. Um, but it uses techniques where people actually um, uh, embody the cityscape. And that's very much a part of the, the film of Metropolis. You're using the images of the, the city to carry the themes of alienation and control of the human by the machine. Um, so we did that. We played out, we were the machines, or we were the whistleblowing, or the, 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 the machines that the workers were having to use. And the, the Europeans that I was playing with, mostly Danish, uh, it was, it was uh, taking place in, in Denmark, but others, had a hard time engaging with it because it was funny. <laughs> it was a little bit like goofy to be like playing a machine and you know move, running around and you know pretending you were a bird if they were in a park or whatever. And so we had to really work a little bit to engage. And most of them said, oh, "I love the themes of this game, but I don't know why it has to be absurd." And it was funny to me because I didn't see it as absurd at all, <laughs> not in the slightest. Like if, if if we were doing something that was absurd from my viewpoint it would have been like um, Looney Tunes, you know, just like over the top. But there's this different viewpoint. They really wanted to be serious. 
And I was thinking about how it would be if I was running that with an American audience, generically speaking, not everybody, obviously. I would have such a hard time trying to get them to engage with the, the, the serious issues. Like the, the looseness and the funniness and the, the little bit of goofiness would make it more acceptable so that we could then eventually hit on a moment where it was like, oh my god, here we are dealing with like serious class issues. And it was fun and light up until then. And so I realized that my approach in working with people in serious issues was really the opposite, and it was very off-putting for the, the folks in the Nordic scene that I was working with. So. It reminds me, uh, that sort of reminds me of Jeep Farm a little bit. Uh, I think of the upgrade, uh, and we can talk about Jeep Farm, which is a whole different sort of school of, of activity, but the, the upgrade is a game designed to sort of teach you the tools that you need to play other Jeep Farm games, and it's very light and very fun, and I think we've all facilitated it at one time or another. Uh, but but there can be some real pathos there. It's you know, it's you, you're, it's the silly reality TV relationship drama. But these couples have real you know feelings for each other, and they're really being hurt, or they're really coming together, uh, sort of in a stealthy way, uh, which makes it very palatable for audiences that might otherwise be uncomfortable with uh, with many of these techniques. It's not playing a game about your alcoholic father. Uh, you know, you're on a reality TV show, and it's safe, right? There's distance there. There is, but at the same time, not enough distance that you can't have those moments. Yeah, exactly. I facilitated a run where we had a very serious flash forward to an AA meeting. All right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally yeah. see it. Should we talk about G form? Is that relevant here? Sure. Okay. So, uh, tell me about G form. Now. Okay. So the freeform type of gaming is a little bit in reaction to the LARP scene in, in Europe, and please correct me, anybody who out there who knows better than I, um, but from some of the folks who I've spoken to about Jeepform, it's, it's a, a way of saying, okay, 360 degrees and absolutely perfect costuming, and oh my god, we're going to be in character every moment of every day, which are some of the ideals that we're talking about in, in Nordic LARP. Fuck all that! <laughs> um, so... I, we are coming to all of this with fresh eyes and are seeing what's interesting about that and they coming up through it were reacting to it and so it's decided to say let's do something different. Let's say that we're not bound just to being able to represent things but to have our ima imaginations uh, steer us to the story and steer us to the themes in whatever way um, uh, works best. And uh, so there's a series of techniques that are um, they're very meta actually. Right. It's, uh, they embrace the metagame. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, my understanding, too, is that Freeform also partially developed out of the tabletop scene. So people were playing uh, tabletop games like D&D, &D, and they noticed that they wanted to be getting up away from the table and like acting out the scene, but they didn't want to go all the way to LARP. Um, and so, uh, so this really confused me uh, when I went to Denmark uh, for the first time. Uh, everyone was telling me about these, about how I needed to know about Freeform and Jeepform and these tabletop games, and I was like, no. My book is about LARP. Uh, uh, I think here we, we might call it LARP uh, because of that sort of physical component of acting things out. Um, uh, the way it was explained to me, and I thought this was the most helpful explanation of Freeform that I received, uh, is that you can think of Freeform and LARP or as a tabletop and LARP as a spectrum. So at the one end you've got you know traditional D and D, and at the other end you've got uh, like high-resolution LARP, uh, you know, all in character all the time. Freeform is sort of the stuff in the middle that uh, incorporates tabletop-like aspects and LARP-like aspects. So you've got the LARP-like aspect of 
acting things out, for example. Um, at, at the LARP end of things, uh, ideally, I guess, in the 360 world, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between stuff that happens in the LARP and stuff that happens in real life. So, you know, so your bouquet of flowers is a bouquet of flowers, and your one-hour walk to the dungeon takes you one hour to walk there, <laughs> right? On the tabletop end, you've got a more symbolic way of doing things. So, you know, your one-hour walk to the dungeon as the GM, I just say, okay, you walk through the woods, and, uh, you know, you see some bunnies, and you kill them, and it's fine, and then you get to the dungeon. Um, so Freeform combines sort of uh, things from both sides of the equation. Uh, so you act stuff out, but, you know, I can turn my pen symbolically into a... Uh, a bouquet of flowers, or into a dagger, or into anything else I might need to bring in from the scene. Um, and my understanding of cheap form is that it was reacting sort of to perceived stillness in the freeform scene. No one seems to really be able to explain what freeform means very well, uh, but cheap form is its own little corner of that world um, where the people who created cheap form, uh, it's sort of the, the way it was described to me, it's, it's like computers, right? Uh, only certain computers are Macs. And sort of the same way with Jeepform. Jeepform is a style of freeform gaming, but not all freeforms are Jeepform and vice versa. That's right. As a, as a game designer, uh, it was something that I immediately latched onto and uh, found relevant. Uh, and f and f there are techniques there that were immediately actionable in my tabletop design, and I found that very exciting. And the, the embracing of metagame is something that, of course, we do anyway. Uh, so, so it was very accessible to me, uh, and probably to you too, I imagine. Uh, as, a, as a sort of entree into this world, uh, a very sort of safe and, uh, and understandable way to, to get into it without sort of being thrown in the deep end. So, so that's, that's G4. Where does the name come from? Uh, they go by G. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there are many apocryphal stories. Yeah, it's a bunch of Danes. There is no need to go. If you really need to go, you have to meet the guys and have some drinks with them, and you hear a different story every time. <laughs> I, I think all the stories there was alcohol involved. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> most likely. <laughs> So it might be helpful to talk a little bit about meta techniques, since they're used in both cheap form and Nordic Lerp. Yeah, that's great. Um, and what they are is they're basic, I think of them as being a way of breaking the flow of narrative to heighten the tension in the scene. And there are like many different ways of doing that, but one of the most common ones is monologuing. Um, and monologuing is usually used in the in cheap form games, and I don't know, maybe in other freeform games. Um, it's where you're having a scene with someone and the facilitator points at one of you and says monologue and you just open a window into your character's thoughts and deliver a soliloquy, basically. Um, sometimes it can be played for laughs, you know, if one person is hitting on another person, you know, how do you feel about this? Uh, you know, they can respond negatively, negatively in their monologue and then positively in their scene. That's great. Sort of like an aside in Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly like a soliloquy, basically, or, mo or a monologue in Shakespeare. And so when you come back into the game, uh, you know, in-game no one has heard what you've said, but out-of-game everyone has. So if I'm talking about my infertility in my monologue, then in later scenes um, my fellow players are free to help push on that button uh, to help my character grow. 
something that's uh, exciting about these meta techniques is that they're infinitely portable. So if you're a tabletop player, you can yeah. you can incorporate this stuff with absolute fidelity and without losing anything in your in your tabletop games. Well, probably the same with other kinds of art, I'm sure. So what are some other meta techniques? Simple ones are flashbacks and flashboards. Um, the game that you talked about earlier, the upgrade uses that um, in the reality TV show uh, format, and, which makes sense because in a reality TV show, you'd always have either a monologue from someone saying, "Oh, this is what I really felt at that moment," or a brief moment later of um, you know two people hating each other now, and then later they're having sex, that kind of thing. Um, so that can be used either for humor or to to give you an insight into what's going to happen. And playing with time, uh, and obviously the power. I remember uh, one round of the upgrade where we had a lot of parallel scenes, where it would be uh, a husband and a wife and his lover and her lover, and they would be, you know, having a scene at the same time that would sort of echo each other, and that was always fun to see. So, so who's, who's calling for this? Is it the game master or the players? It can be either. Most of the freeform games have a very strong directorial or GM role, um, where they're helping everybody sort of stay on task and supporting people as they play. When we, when we talk about LARP, there wouldn't be the same kind of role for a GM. They'd be more stepped back in most games, I think, making sure that things uh, run smoothly or that certain events happen, if that's how it goes. But for the freeform games, like Jeepform, um, most of them, not oh, well, not all of them, would have um, a GM there who's sort of either setting scenes or uh, prompting characters or using these meta techniques. And um, one interesting thing about the upgrade is that it's sort of a training game. Um, and it, it, over time, you as a player are sort of getting the sense of how and when you would use something. So in the beginning, the GMs, there's usually a pair of GMs who are the producers of the, the reality TV show. They call, you know, they say, okay, three hours later, you guys are having sex now. Um, and then later on, you'd be like, oh, yeah, we're having sex now, right? <laughs> because uh, in some of the games, it, it, you are empowered to be able to make those directorial decisions yourself. And speaking of the directorial uh, decisions, um, that is one big difference, I think, between traditional tabletop and uh, traditional LARP and uh, Jeepform or Freeform, which is that the scenes are cut by the GM. Mm -hmm. So you don't just play one long scene. Uh, you know, you play out the seduction, and then the GM says cut, and you cut to a scene that's later. You cut to a different set of characters. Um, and so that's very different also. And having that external eye, finding that exact moment, the sort of the button of the scene when it, when it really should end because the important thing is done, uh, is, is incredibly valuable and uh, very useful. And that reminds me a lot of improvisation, like yeah. short form improvisation, which you see that kind of thing. And that's been used more in the, in the tabletop scene in independent role playing games, a lot of um, indie games, whatever that means use pretty aggressive scene framing so that they say, okay, we're going to start you right in the middle of the action and then we'll stop at a suspenseful point and we'll come in later and hear from your characters, that kind of thing. There are other meta techniques that I think about that uh, that haven't been incorporated this, as much but it easily could be. I think of things like bird and ear, which is such a fun technique. So, so bird, and, bird and ear is something that's embraced by Jeep form and is probably used more widely. But the idea is that uh, either the director or a designated player uh, is going to be uh, feeding you information or ideas uh, during a scene. So uh, Lizzie and Emily are having a conversation, and I just, I'm, I'm like, you totally want her. You know you do. Make the move. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> 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 Came to mind. But, uh, 
but that's how bird and ear works, and uh, it, it can lead to uh, surprises, you know, an unexpected play uh, because you're you're getting information uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have from a third party. And some of this does bleed over into the LARP scene, I think, uh, in little drips and drabs. So, for example, some LARPs now have been using this thing called black box. Um, and black box is a metaphorical space somewhere on the grounds of the LARP where uh, players can go to play a possible future or a possible past or to flesh something out uh, in their backstory. Um, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to affect the reality of the game. Uh, but it's a way, for a way, I think, for people to further develop their characters and to explore avenues uh, that they don't get to choose in-game. Um, so, you know, so if you want to know what your funeral, was, your funeral is like, you can go and play that possible future, even if in-game, you know, the game won't last long enough or something for you to die or for other characters to mourn you or, you know, or maybe you choose a different, uh, to go down a different path with your character uh, than one that would lead you in that direction. Um, so I think of that as being parallel to the to the time cutting uh, that happens in in some of the G form games, um, and also bird and ear. Uh, I think I think <laughs> that that is a technique that the Mad About the Boy uh, staff used. Um, uh, the there are no NPCs. This is another facet of um, uh, Nordic LARP. Is even when there are NPCs, they're like a couple. Uh, you know, it's not like at my local buffer game, uh, everyone has to do an NPC shift, and there are always hordes of monsters coming out of logistics, basically. Um, but I have heard that I have heard tale told of, you know, like a three hundred person LARP that had maybe four NPCs, um, which is kind of crazy uh, to us. Um, uh, but so in this game, the uh, the organizers will play like the staff of the resort where the game is taking place. But as organizers, they'll also have the ability to whisper things. They also have the ability to whisper character direction into the ears of the players when they're by themselves. And in, in that case, how much authority do they have? Are they actually telling you things to do, or are they giving you information? I think they're more giving you prompts to generate further character development. So things you might want to think about or issues you might want to explore. That's my understanding. Yeah, I shall find out. <laughs> it is a good thing the Norwegian people are coming. <laughs> it seems to me that uh, for some of these techniques, it would be difficult to maintain consistency. Uh, but if you have a funerary scene and then you actually die in the game or something, that's completely contradicting what happened in the. We actually had that happen in one of the games. It was the reality TV show one, the upgrade. And uh, at the beginning of the game, everybody who's in the show is at this, um, you know, cast party that's uh, you know sort of at the end. Um, and then what what's happening in the game is all the flashbacks to what's been recorded over the two weeks or whatever when everybody's been you know sleeping around. And so we knew all of the cast members were there. And then at a certain point, it looked like one of them had committed suicide. And we all looked around at one another. <laughs> and we're like, OK, how are we going to deal with this? <laughs> and then we had, um, we went back to the, the initial framing scene. And we sort of panned out. We saw that he was there in a wheelchair with his leg broken. And so he had fallen off of this cliff and just broken his leg. And so we incorporated that information, but didn't have him die. And uh, everyone, I think the, the GMs were <laughs> <laughs> All right, we did good. Let's go on. <laughs> well played. 
Um, but I think that's a very good uh, point. And, and it's an issue that comes up when you have multiple um, timelines, basically. When you're allowing yourself to go forward and back, you have to be open to doing things. And, oh, that leads to another um, technique, replaying a scene, which can be a really powerful technique in, 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 that can help you say, oh, well, OK, what just happened is one possible future. You know, let's replay it in a different way. Um, other uses for it can be to say, um, maybe it wasn't a strong scene. You know, your, your players were going along, we framed it, we did this thing, and then we're all just like, there was more there, and we missed it. So let's go back to just that beginning of where we played that scene. And now maybe the, the GM will give you a few more directives, like you're really angry, and, and it allows you to express that more. Or tone it down, you know, bring it in, make this more intimate. Um, and then you can play it again and get something completely different. Maybe most of the events will be the same. Maybe the events will be totally different. Um, and there's enough flexibility to that it's OK. You can incorporate both the visions and then bond with whichever one you ended with or whichever one felt strongest. Um, and it, it makes for a, like a richer story that's coming out because you're getting different viewpoints. I mean, you could even do the um, uh, Rashomon thing where you could have it from three different persons' uh, viewpoint. And, um, Sure, there must be a game that does that. Point of view, place the point of view, yeah. Right. Um, exactly. But that's, that's another. Right one. Yeah. <laughs> that's another uh, point of. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, that just uh, reminded me that I'm something that's that's uh, nice. Um, people meet these techniques. So you um, have a comment in it, and it doesn't really work out well. It's boring. So the game master says, let's have this family dinner again. We can in a monologue from each of the members. Mm -hmm. So we get to the points of why people are so silent on the table of all the And that something that that's really being built on in most of these games and these techniques is dramatic irony. Because not only do we have the story and the events occurring, but we get to be viewers, not only doing the events, but the inner space of the characters. And and we have the, the difference between what they do and what they think or or what different characters think. That makes it more of a literary Should we, do people have any more questions about LARP, going back to that as the, the main focus? Or did you see anything in the book that uh, you had questions about? Or? Um, with with uh, these groups of such scale, is there a resolution point that people are working towards known at the beginning? Or is it more uh, nebulous? I'm very unfamiliar with this and just genuinely curious. It's a great question. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, actually a really good point. Uh, oftentimes you are working towards a point, a, a specific point. I think less in the LARPs than in the tabletop games. I know, okay, so I played this, uh, this Nordic LARP called In Fair Verona. The core mechanic of In Fair Verona was tango dancing. Um, and it, was, it had a three-act structure. And uh, during the workshop, we all developed out our characters. Uh, we did this collaboratively with props from a table, and we each got a character dilemma, and then 
I tried to figure out if the character, how to fit the character dilemma into the conception of our character. And then the challenge for the game was either you overcome your character dilemma and fall, find love, or you don't overcome your character di dilemma and you're close to love kind of forever. Um, so there are clear outcomes and you kind of know what you're playing to. Um, many of the Jeep form games have really uh, well-established structures. Um, and so I, I think in, in those cases, uh, sometimes the structure and the plot are almost preset, um, and it becomes less about where you end up than how you get there. Uh, fate play. I heard you whispering about fate, fate play. play. Yeah, yeah it's it's described as that yeah. becomes fate play, but um, I guess in the more Nordic mark scene, as Lisa puts it, there, your character might have goals for the game. There might be a general goal for the game, or a group of characters, but as often as there is one, as often there won't be one. So it could be just pure, basically, game masters write up the characters and the scene to a point, give it to the players and say, go nuts, and then the players play for whatever amount of time, and then they debrief it to the game masters, say, this is where we got to, and then the game master, especially in the sort of, well, we call them city games, but pervasive LARPs where per you're at per in the per world. Per pervasive LARPs in, in as, well, I've got experience on the Finnish scene of those, but basically that's how they work. Game masters give it, write it up, give it to the players, the players play for over a weekend, whatever, 48 hours, they debrief it to the game masters, and the game masters go, right, so this is what happened, they write up the next two or three months what happens in the game world, and then they give it back to the players for the next weekend of games, which they then play. And there might be goals, but it might be an overarching thing where on that particular weekend, actually nothing happens to a character. He just spends time. And then all the actual action might happen outside that sort of play time. But then it could be the reverse as well. That Okay, fair enough. Next three months, you're going to be spending out of town because of the events, what happened in the last game. And then after three months, you return back to the city to see what happened. And then that's your next game. Can well, you there are, are some games with that heavy emphasis on, emphasis on fake play. So the game, the game might have a fixed ending, and every player knowing, knowing that this game has to end, so Hamlet dies. There's a famous one that was basically the play of Hamlet, but yeah. set in, what, the 1920s? Or uh, more of a modern yeah. era. Can someone explain fate play? I think that would be nice. Well, it means that a game, game, game or character does have some um, fixed, fixed plot lines that has to happen, that has to be acted out, or has to end in some certain way. So, for example, the game might have a rule that in the ending, uh, king of the realm must die in an assassination attempt. So, if the game is going to end some way, there has to be an assassination attempt. So some player will do it, or, or some character might do it properly. I'm thinking of Memento of the Lark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. 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 Oh, or something as simple as one of you is infected and you will all become zombies. Yeah. 
Or just get the flu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There actually might be a game rule, the game ends when the last person is done. Right. Uh, yeah. Given that you have like 30 players, I'm assuming that at that dinner table, not everybody and 30 people are sitting around it. What's the role of those other players as an audience, or people who aren't playing at all, being an audience? It, it varies whether it's LARP or if it's the freeform. Freeform, it, just the structure allows for audience more easily. There was a, a freeform called um, uh, uh, previous re res uh, previous residents, previous occupants. Previous occupants. I'm getting there. Um, that uh, some uh, Nordic folks wrote because they wanted it to be more accessible to Americans. So it's a horror story, it's about ghosts, there's two parallel storylines going on, uh, one in the 50s, one in the 80s or so, in the same hotel room, and there's a murder that happens earlier, and then there's the question that will the ghosts make the later couple murder each other. Um, so all of this is happening, like say this was the play area, we would be acting it out, you know, we'd murder each other, <laughs> these guys have sex. <laughs> Um, and then uh, people who weren't in the scene would be sitting out where you guys are, uh, in the lit chairs, watching. And then you come up and do your scene. And there could even be people who aren't actually going to have characters. Um, in that particular game, people can jump up and, and ring a bell to end a scene, or they can use bird and ear to push somebody to do something. So people who were just audience most of the time, if they were inspired, they could jump up and give us some idea of what to do and the upgrade can function in the same way too. So that the structure there is very clear. There's one scene going on, everyone's watching it, everyone can, can observe. Um, and in some games, there's a small enough number of characters that there is no audience ever. Everybody's always in the scene, but still the idea is for everyone to see and to hear and to think about what's going on. And like you said before, to build on it and use that dramatic irony to allow everybody to create the story. Now if it's a LARP, You've got 30 plus people, there's three different spaces, you know, there's people going over there having intrigue, there's a murder happening here, there's a banquet happening there. No one's going to be able to necessarily see anything that anybody else sees. Um, and a black box area would um, sort of be a space out of that space where people might be invited to come and uh, witness something that somebody's doing um, or participate in it outside of a normal character. Um, but the the this, the, what is it, asynchronous, just the, the non-linear nature of a LARP makes that much more difficult to do with. So it would be harder to have the, the audience and the, the character split. There's also a thing in freeform games uh, where uh, sometimes one person will be the focus of a scene. Um, so, uh, like, if you're playing, uh, if you're playing, uh, okay, so there's this cheap form called Doubt that's about two couples. Uh, one is actors, and the other uh, are the characters that they play on stage. And they're portrayed by four people. And so some of the scenes are focused on the real-life couple, in which case the other two players come in as all of the NPCs and serve supporting roles. And sometimes the scenes are between the two characters on the stage with, uh, and with the non-players coming in. And so I think there's also, um, I think that gets at this idea of collaborative play. So sometimes when I'm playing, I'm not playing for myself. I'm playing because I want to help Emily have character de development. Um, and I think that's really nice. <laughs> uh, just as a sort of sidebar on that, there are also art LARPs that are intended to be played in public. That's uh, true. Uh, where you're, you know, you're, you're either interacting with or you're, there's a performative aspect of it for the, the people who are not part of the experience. 
that you might do in the, the middle of Helsinki. That actually gets to a sort of a, a contrasting approach that maybe we can talk about. Um, there was a, a very intense LARP that was done last year called Capo. Um, and then there was another one called, I can't remember the name, but maybe it was Dublin 88 or... Oh, yeah. Dublin 2, I think. Dublin, Dublin 2. Okay, Dublin 2. And so they're very similar themes. It's about incarceration. It's about what... Um, uh, uh, migrants who come into a place and who have to um, assimilate to the area to deal with, and it's about oppression and it's about society sort of abandoning people. But in one, the um, event was um, extremely psychologically intense, and it was it was based on a sort of uh, an experiment that had been done that showed that when you have people who are um, sort of being hazed, they'll haze the next generation that comes in. It just becomes internalized, and that was Kappa. And then the other one, the intent of it was to sort of engage the community around them. So it was set, I believe it was in Copenhagen or some, some major city, and it was, um, uh, I'll be corrected, I'm sure, we, wherever mm -hmm. this is posted, we can put I'm it in the sure notes. It was in Helsinki? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was in, it was in a, a very lovely major city in Europe, and, uh, <laughs> and it was in an area that was demarcated, but that was public. And um, the issues that the, the basic plot of the LARP was that people were um, immigrants coming in and being processed, but it could take a very, very long time, if ever, that you be processed to be able to um, you know, get your green card, essentially, and to join society. Um, so the participants, um, some of them were playing immigrants, some of them were playing lawyers, some of them were playing newspaper people, and there was a certain amount of <clears throat> engagement that was done with the people in the city around them. So, so much so that there was a person who was just a bystander who had maybe an interaction with someone who was pretending, you know, or acting out the role of an immigrant. And he was actually a lawyer. He got involved <laughs> in the LARP. And, and he knew it was, wasn't real, I, but, but just became engaged in it and ended up successfully arguing her, her escape from this, this uh, um, center. And I feel like that is an amazing success. <laughs> and I'm sure I got many of the details wrong there. But essentially, like, I think that there's a very interesting way that we can look at the art and say, what are we, what, what's the goal? Is it the internal experience of the participants, which is one thing and is amazing? And then there's a whole sort of transformative element that you can have. And am I crazy, or but did or did Capo have people who could walk through the game as an art installation? Oh no, I I didn't know that. I I think I kind of think that's right. Wow, I'm not sure though. So you could hear the screaming and the torture and stuff. And yeah, then... it seemed like there was some kind of catwalk maybe. Oh, I see. Uh, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I'm not a hundred percent on that. But. I hope that's true because that's very arty. Yeah. <laughs> but but would, would uh, bystanders be aware that they're entering a large space? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That changes things. Well, yeah. Expectation is so sure. Calling nine one one. Yeah. Worse, yeah. worse. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dublin two. Like they had a cage set up in the middle of the square, and yeah. I don't know that there was a lot of explanation. I, I, I'm not sure, but I think that you know there may have been some. Not knowing, not knowing what, what, their, the context was. what their context was, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's a great question. And you, you got like a dozen different answers. <laughs> 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 Any more questions? Anything that you'd like to talk about while we're here? We just have a few more minutes.
So I, I was once asked a, a question, um, how is the SEA different than the LARP? And I gave an answer which I'm realizing was definitely American biased. And I'm kind of wondering what the Nordic LARP response would be. What's the difference between the SCA and a LARP? The SCA, there's no immersion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> very Nordic. That's very Nordic. That is very Nordic. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not actually saying that. As Lisi said, um, immersion is really important to the LARP scene. And it's seen, some, it's seen something as some. And the main thing that differs is from almost everything else. It's kind of it's it's a very and it depends on who you're asking. That if you're asking someone who's a who only does SCA in say Finland, I happen to know a few of those people. Um, they're very strictly not marking ever. This is SCA. The difference, yeah, it's, I, I suppose it, if you want to put a label on it, it is going to be an immersion. SCA won't have, there won't be a story. Lars okay. will have a story. And you're not immersion to someone else than yourself. Yeah, you, you yourself won't. in another sense. Yeah. yeah. In a lot, you're definitely not yourself, even if somebody is bleeding out. I was very surprised. I haven't ever participated long term in SCA, but I've been to a couple of uh, feast events. You know, the court was held, the local baron came, and and uh, I was really enjoying it. I'd done some LARPs and I went, and I was expecting to be in character and do these things, and it was very different. Everyone had a character, <clears throat> but really, it was almost you were being rewarded in this court for your real world accomplishments because so much of the SCA activity is craft. I mean, it was that you were <laughs> being rewarded for your real world actions, which are reenacting these past crafts, making your armor, doing your, your uh, beautiful illumination. Um, and so everyone had uh, a character through which they were rewarded, but it was interesting because it was really that just these people, incredible hard work was being recognized at court, and then there were some jokes, and there was food, and it was lovely. But this kind of intense having a character that you have the emotions of, and have these very strong interactions with other people who are very deeply in character, um, was very different. Very, Maybe very different. Civil War reenacting would be more immersive, because people who get into that are real serious. Um, yeah, my answer came because I I used to be an SCA active or something like eight years, and the scene is so different in Finland because the character immersion is so important in LARPs. And as you said, in the SCA, the character is it's just some sort of. A it's just a label for you. Yeah. Okay. It's a different label. You put on costume, but it's still you wearing those clothes. Not, it's another element. Not, yeah, you're not putting on another person's clothes, yeah. which you are doing in a Nordic LARP. It's being discussed here. It's not the only way to do it. It's something else. You can see it every morning, the lost of the population. It's not going to fall out. It's not going to happen. That's actually a similar response I gave. And I was just trying. Okay, interesting. Thank you. My answer to that would be that I've never seen anyone get their tooth knocked out LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> You're just not playing with the right people. Right, right. But, but it's so immersive. Like you're, you're feeling exactly what it would be like. <laughs>
That's why we have mechanics. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks to our guest speakers. Yes. Here. Yes. <laughs> and uh, just again to give props to uh, Yako and Marcus for Nordflex. It's a great like everything we've said is in greater detail here. So check it out, and it's available online.